Hey, it's Perrin. Before we start today's show, I got a favor to ask of you. We recently set a record for daily podcast downloads in a single day. We hit about 550 downloads, and that was a record by a good shot for us. We appreciate everybody who's in our network and in our audience. And just like you, when you grow your patient base through referrals, we grow our podcast audience through referrals. If you're on your iPhone, for example, and you're looking at our podcast episode or the title page on it, there are three little dots in the upper right-hand corner. If you click on those three dots, it brings up a menu. And most of the way down the menu, there's something that says, Share Show. If you click on Share Show, you can text or email our podcast to any of your friends or colleagues or people you think might benefit from the subject matter we share. We get a lot of great compliments on the content we share from almost every phone call I take. And I really appreciate everybody being in the audience. So if I'm not asking too much, I'm going to ask you to share our show with a couple of friends, colleagues, or people you think might benefit. It's the way we'll expand our audience. And DeWalker and I would be eternally grateful for it. Thanks very much in advance. And with that, on to the show. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode 30 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast one we're calling how to become the ideal borrower for a bank and planning your future that's right it's a little bit more banking on today's episode we've covered a lot of highlights including a tremendous um, episode with dr sampson lou on a debt restructure that we did with him but today we're going to talk about you and what you can do internally, externally, and from a wealth management standpoint in terms of getting ready to become an ideal borrower for a bank. If it's banking, that only means one thing. That's right. I'm bringing the little man with the big microphone back again today. This will be three out of four episodes that DeWalker is going to be joining me. And I know none of you can wait. So go ahead, brew another wonderful cup of coffee. Make sure it's strong, maybe even a double espresso. Get your pad and pen ready. It's going to come fast and furious on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. We're on the air. Once again, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and I got teased in the introduction my partner, DeWalker Sinha, is back behind the microphone with me today to talk a little bit more on the subject that's most near and dear to him. That's right, banking. DeWalker, thanks for joining me today, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, you know, 
that's that's a that's a resounding introduction right there, isn't it? Some <laughs> somebody had their Wheaties this morning and somebody didn't. That notwithstanding, today is going to be um, sort of a different banking episode. Honestly, we we go. Uh, when it comes to banking, it's obviously a subject that DeWalker lived for the better part of 20 years, uh, and we tend to go really deep and granular on that. Um, today is, I don't know if lighter is the right term, but it, we're going to be a little bit more um, tactical and, and um, guidance-oriented in terms of what uh, things people can do to get themselves ready um, that may play a lot of benefit if they choose to, to make a change in their banking relationship, and even when they don't, honestly. So this is a, a, a little bit of a different style of an episode where we'll arguably give more tactical guidance um, than just pure, uh, pure education. So why don't we start um, with uh, something that we can all do a better uh, job at, and that's personal living expenses. Good grief, it's tough to start off with a concept like that on a uh, on a podcast. You want to take this one from the top here? Yeah, so I, mean, I think when we work with our clients or you know as we're working through a capital raise process for um, uh, you know the different debt vehicles we have available, um, working with our clients on the uh, strategic consulting side, um, and even yeah, on a on a uh, uh, transactional basis on partnerships, you know, we're trying to get our clients to understand, you know, are they how are they living within their 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 means and and how are the decisions they're making positioning for short term uh, decisions and long term decisions, um, and you know, one of the things that you know people just kind of think about it when they've gone through a mortgage, they kind of. Uh, related to the mortgage industry. So if you applied for a mortgage, for a first mortgage or uh, second mortgage or any kind of a, um, a mortgage product, your bank could probably talk to you about debt to income ratio. Um, and they probably said, okay, your debt to income ratio is 20%, 30%. Uh, or if you didn't ask that question or they didn't tell you, then and you still got the loan, you're probably fine. Um, but majority of mortgage companies that are A prime institutions are probably going to be anywhere from a 27, 28% debt to income ratio to about a 35% debt to income ratio. And what that means uh, in an economic standpoint is, okay, so for every $100,000 in debt, and we've talked about global debt service coverage ratio on a business corporate lending side, I'm kind of going to the consumer side and kind of looking at your household aspect, is for every $100,000 in debt or revenue coming in or income coming in in your 1040, how much are your expenses going outflow? So if I say to you, your maximum debt to income ratio that you need to be at is 35%, that means for every $100,000 in pre-tax income you're bringing in, the maximum uh, 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 required outflow can, cannot exceed 35%. Uh, what is required outflow from a, from a lender's position? Required outflow is going to be your mortgage. Required outflow is going to be your student loan debt. Required outflow is going to be any credit card obligations you have, and required outflow is going to be your car loans. Okay, so anything that's reported essentially in your credit report, but that's not going to include cell phone, utilities, and things like that. That's why the number is so low. So when you're probably looking at it and saying, okay, you know, he just told me for every hundred thousand dollars I can only spend thirty-five thousand dollars. That that seems very low. I, I don't know how I can achieve have a house, have student loan debts, have a car payment. And you know, and have a reasonable lifestyle, um, and that has to do with again debt to income ratio on a pre-discretionary position. 
And, and so how do banks come in at 30%, you know, or 35% on the debt to income max ratio? Um, well, they're trying to look at it from a lens of um, post-tax basis. So if you're making $100,000, you're probably paying $35,000 in taxes, 35% in taxes. And you know, depending on the stage, you might get some refund and things like that. But on the average, you're probably 30 to 35% out the door um, on a minute if you're doing payroll processing. So you're left with $65,000. And so that's roughly just over $5,000 a month, $5,400 a month uh, going uh, as far as post-tax income. And what they're saying is that kind of post-tax income is you're pulling in $5,400 a month and your, your outflow, required outflow is $3,000. That should allow us $2,400 a month in discretionary income for discretionary expenses. Well, what are discretionary expenses from, from an institution's position? Well, one is discretionary uh, uh, viewpoint would be cell phone. Uh, I think in today's world, we would all argue cell phone is a required obligation. Um, that said, it's, it's typically not in, in your, on your credit report. Uh, yeah, you might have got a credit report check when you go, went and bought, uh, got a cell phone um, from AT&T or Sprint or whatever your provider is. Uh, but it's typically not in your credit report unless you did the financing on your phone. Uh, then it might be in your credit report. Um, you know, your utility bills, your grocery bills, you're going on vacation. So if you think about it, if you're making a, um, you know, 100000 a year and after tax and after your obligations of 3000 a month, you're left with $2,400 in discretionary income. You know, in today's gas prices, you might be four to $500 out the door in gas. Uh, you're, now you're left with $2,000 and that's for cell phone, utilities, vacation. That's not a lot of discretionary income. Uh, and that's why a lot of banks, when they look at it and saying a 35% debt to income ratio on $100,000, uh, what they're trying to say is, hey, that's bare minimum, that's max for us. Uh, and if anything, they want you to be closer to 25 to 30%. So one of the, a good rule in, in, in banking or just kind of decision tree process is the the max, so it's called a rule of three, um, and you don't want to have a mortgage or a purchase a house more than three times your income, and you don't want to have a car more than a third your income. So that's the rule of three. So let me kind of break that down. So if you're making 100000 a year, you ideally don't want to have a car more than $33,000 uh, sales price. And now, again, I understand the last 24 months, the uh, auto industry, uh, it's difficult to buy a car and you're subjected to what you're subjected to uh, as far as pricing conditions out there. But I think that's a good rule if you kind of think about it. You know, if you're making 100000 a year, your, your, uh, your uh, post-tax income is looking around $5,400 a, a month. Um, and if you're buying a $30,000 to $33,000 car, you know, on a five-year payment, that payment's probably closer to about $600 to $650 a month on a five-year Installment that that's you know anywhere from and I'm not solving for exact interest rate but three to four percent interest rates uh, around that time and the, around that pricing metrics. So again, that's you know one would argue that thirty three thirty thousand dollar car is is reasonable. That's a Nissan Maxima that could be a used BMW three series depending on the year you get. You know so that's reasonable. And if you have a hundred thousand um, uh, dollar income, you know buying a three hundred thousand dollar house and purchase price and you know putting twenty percent down or ten percent down. And financing that would, you know, at, you know, let's call it two hundred seventy thousand uh, uh, dollar debt service or loan amount on two hundred thousand dollar purchase price on a thirty year mortgage would probably give you, you know, close to um, you know two thousand dollars a month in mortgage payment. So if you kind of think about it, we're solving for that thirty percent, thirty five percent debt debt service uh, uh, debt to income ratio. Then you have a, a mortgage amount of two thousand dollars a month going out the door. You know, you have price student loan debts of three hundred to five hundred dollars a month. 
that cuts you to about $2,500. And then you have that Nissan Maxima, uh, that loaded Nissan Maxima for thirty dollars to $35,000. And I apologize if I get the purchase price of that car wrong. Um, gets you right at $3,000. And, and that's your 30% debt to income ratio. Uh, and that, that's something I really think about. That rule of three kind of auto-corrects itself as you kind of think about that on a, on, a, on a basis. And now I start to go towards most of our, you know, our audience members that are probably making anywhere from 250 to two million, three million dollars a year. Now the the uh, uh, the, the economic numbers changes. So at that point, you don't want to have a purchase price of your house more than typically two and a half times your income. So if you're if you're making five hundred thousand dollars. You know, the max purchase price you want to really want to start looking at is a million dollars, really, but a million two five is okay. Now, those things might be more difficult in California and other markets, but these are different rules to kind of think about as you're, as you're, as you're, as you're looking at different economic decisions. And that's going to be very relevant as we go into this rising cost of capital environment. You know, we talked a few podcasts ago about, uh, you know, how consumer spending is going to be with credit card rates, how uh, mortgages are tied to different treasury indexes. Um, those are those are driving the indexes, and obviously, the the bank's cost of capital, the Fed funds rates is improving. So all of these things are somewhat interconnected yet independent, and you know people just need to kind of think about what that means to them as they move forward. So, you know, the rule of three is a good if you're making you know you know hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars, you start getting to about two hundred fifty, the two million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars, you start when looking at the purchase price of a house. More than two to two and a half times, just because one of them being your your tax rate is not thirty percent anymore; it's probably closer to 40, 45 percent, and those things impact your disposable income. You know, lastly, you know, one of the things you want to be uh, also thinking about, and we'll kind of uh, we we have a, a income needs analysis that we'll kind of go through. Also, want to be thinking about okay, you're thirty years old, you're forty years old, you're fifty years old, and depending on your life cycle and your business. You know, a lot of people are coming to us and, you know, we're happy to help them with that process and the sell side process to find the right financial partner or business partner for them to sell to a, a, a DSO or another dental practice. Um, but, but what is your wealth management strategy outside it? And those are, those are other things to be kind of thinking about as you're looking at your disposable income going into it. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're covering a lot of uh, topics that we rarely touch on on the podcast, but we touch on frequently with clients. And I think there's, there's a lot of merit in that, obviously. But, um, you know, one of the key, one of the cornerstones of this is kind of a a mindset shift, if you will. And the mindset shift is is one where if you are a successful dentist, uh, clinician, practice owner, you probably make uh, a healthy amount of income. Um, and as I've said on the podcast on numerous occasions, none of us do what we do for free. We like spending money. We like having kids in private school. We like taking trips and driving fancy cars. And DeWalker gave us some ratios when it comes to houses and cars and things like that to keep in mind. Um, but we tend to spend a lot of the money we make out of our businesses. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That being said, if you're going to build a group practice, I think there are a couple of things you need to, to keep in mind from a personal living expense standpoint. I, I like to tell clients you need to create some margin for error for yourself. If your personal lifestyle is 100% dependent upon taking all of the available cash out of the business to fund uh, you know, the expenses that your lifestyle generates, and a lot of that is in fixed debt, 
then you have no margin for error. And it's going to create a problem when you start trying to transition out of the chair and give up a clinical role in the early stages. The second thing is it sends a really bad signal to any lender uh, to treat your business as, a, as an ATM and just take all the cash out of it. You really do need to create cash on balance sheet, a rainy day fund, a fallback position, something that can allow for CapEx expenditure that's unplanned, or if you want to be opportunistic about an acquisition and you want to put some, some cash into it to make it happen. Um, you, that's all prudent. So we talk about calculating income needs analysis. And as you would well expect at Polaris, we have a calculator for that. We have an analysis for that. We have a data collection form for that and everything. Um, and we can we can really gain some clarity around what those expenses are and the type of either revenue you need to generate for yourself personally or margin expansion, things along those lines. But the, the big picture to this is that you have to start to create that buffer through financial discipline. Um, and if you're not able to do that, you're ultimately not going to be able to build as successful a business due to your own flexibility or chances are from a, um, a lender's perspective, their willingness to fund it. So this is something from a personal living expenses that you really, you have to get your handle, uh, your hands around uh, and get under control early on in the process. Chances are, if you build a great business, it'll cash flow wonderfully and it'll allow you to buy a lot more toys in the future, but in the short run, that's not the time to do it. So, um, let's uh, let's dig back in for a second on, you know, the things we can be doing internally uh, and then getting ready ready externally on uh, on focus for the future um, as it relates to to kind of um, you know get getting square for that. Do you want to take those um, from the top? Yes, I mean I think we talked a little bit about personal um, you know debt to income ratios and things like that. And to your point, I, mean, I think banks start to look at that as an indication of, you know, uh, how can you address a, a, a correction of the market? And as we look at, you know, potential concerns around economic downturn, consumer spending, you know, having that latitude and debt to income ratio or your living expense being conservative to the income means you're getting is going to be uh, impactful to continued lending in the space, um, you know, as, as you grow. The other thing to kind of think about, you know, you know, obviously, if you're going to come to us in, uh, you know, two years or you know six months, and and you're you're going through it, one of the things we're going to be working with you on is, you know, what does your retirement strategy look like? Uh, and we do that in our sell side process with our clients. We kind of work through what that may look like. And obviously, the uh, the the financial markets are down. Um, there's you know, arguments that could be made either way that, hey, you know, you know, having an event in 2022, 2023 might be impactful to a strategy to kind of put some liquidity into the the, the markets. Uh, but I think the answer that as you're thinking about the future, you want to be asking yourself is, is what is the income you need uh, to retire on? And I've, I've said this in the previous podcast, uh, but I'll say it again, whatever your income goals are, you need 15 times that in your retirement account to have a 25-year stream of income at about a 4 to 5% rate of return. So uh, let's, let's do the math fairly uh, on this basis. And so first of all, you need to understand what you need to make 
Um, and I, w- I would envision, I mean, one of the things that we talk about in our income analysis is, are you going to be debt-free when you're 55, 60 years old? Um, I think, you know, you look at mortgages rates that are, you know, when you're refinancing at 40, 45 years old, and you're getting a 30-year mortgage at that time, you know, that, that would mean that 40, 45 years old, when you're getting a mortgage or, or, or refinancing a mortgage, and you re-extend to a 30-year uh, mortgage, that you're going to have that debt outstanding to the age of 75. So uh, I think th- there's economic uh, uh, arguments that could be made. You want the longest interest rate, uh, a lo- longest term in your mortgage, it has some tax benefits, and you could take the differential into your retirement account. You know, I, I come from a lens of just saying, okay, you know, how can we be, how, how can our clients be debt-free in about by the time they're 50 to 60 years old, late at 60 years old? So if you're debt-free at 60 years old or debt-free at 55 years old, we're going to have a capital event. Um, what is the income need you really have? Meaning you have no mortgage, you have no student loan debt, you have just free cash. And what does that look like? So if you had a $200,000 or $300,000 income need based on you know, how your discretionary spending is at, the three hundred thousand dollars, you know, times fifteen would give you four and a half million dollars in a, on a, on a, on a uh, portfolio that you need to have. And if you had four and a half million dollars in a portfolio, again at that four to five percent rate of return, you'd approximately, again, I'm not a CFP, and uh, you'd approximately have a three hundred thousand dollars stream of income over the next twenty five years. And and th- that's pretty good. That's before having Social Security, if that's still around, and you know, uh, uh, there. But those are the kind of things you want to be thinking about as far as where you are today. And if you're not there today, and and you know, you're 10, 5, 10, or twenty years away, there's a different goal that you need to be putting away towards your retirement. Um, if you're 15, 20 years away, you know, you probably need to be putting away at least ten percent, if not twenty percent of your gross income into some kind of a retirement strategy. Uh, so a lot of these things that come into play that we want you to think about, if you're making $400,000 a year, um, you're putting in $40,000 a year in a post-tax basis. That's excluding your 401k contribution or defined benefit plan or cash balance plan you might be putting away to help you position yourself that when you're ready to have a capital event, um, you know, having that capital event is an op- in a discretionary decision you're not banking on that capital event to have your your retirement strategy. The capital event is providing an additional boost to an already successful retirement strategy uh, that you've had in place for the last three, five, fifteen years. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, it's uh, um, you know these are these are components of where your your business and your personal you know, your, your professional life and your personal life kind of come together, right? I mean, all of us who are entrepreneurs are inseparable from our business. And a lot of our personal wealth is tied up in the value of our businesses. And, you know, when you're talking about um, going through a, a, a banking restructure uh, for growth purposes, your intent is to build a more valuable business that's on a much grander scale that would, at least in theory, spin off a lot more cash flow and certainly value much more highly at some point in the future if you, if you ever did decide to transact it. So getting your financial plan in place with that being a component of it and getting ready for that liquidity event well before it happens is is incredibly prudent um and and altogether necessary it's i mean we try to take a a holistic approach for lack of a better term to our clients needs when it comes to this be they 
needs that are voiced in terms of concerns or, or, or missing pieces or things that we ask them about. Um, we don't do financial planning at Polaris, at least not today, depending on when it is you're actually listening to this podcast. It might be something we might entertain in the future, but it's not on the, the short term. But that being said, we do have uh, a lot of resources in that department that we can make connections for um, uh, if a client uh, is in need. And obviously, they're people we trust a lot. So um, that is a a further resource. Um, DeWalker, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, personal living expenses, wealth management strategies, getting ready internally and externally, any, you know, before we wrap up today's show, at least any forward looking uh, thoughts or commentary um, from your end on, you know, the, the months and potentially year to come in terms of your outlook for, uh, uh, for, for the economy and, and, you know, business in all of its endeavors? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the uh, federal Fed rate improvements that are happening, the goal there is to um, lower the CPI and lowering the CPI, um, you know, potentially is lowering the demand out there and matching it with the supply available. Um, And, and that's going to result in, um, you know, whenever that happens in Q4 to Q2 of next year, that's the, the, the range that's different economists are providing. Um, yeah, that's uh, going to result in lower consumer spending towards healthcare to some level. So, you know, the, the, as you're, you know, thinking about your business six months or a year out, things like patient financing will become very impactful. Uh, pay, uh, the marketing uh, hours that your business providing is going to be very impactful, and having a competitive advantage in the market is going to become very impactful. So, I highly encourage our audience members to kind of think about their business again uh, 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 to to move their own cheese versus somebody else moving their cheese for them, or the society moving their cheese for them, and really thinking about their business in in a disruptive fashion. And we may not look at dentistry and healthcare in a disruptive fashion, yet I think healthcare and, and the, the dental practice can be in a disruptive fashion out there. So think about it that way, one. Two, and we focus a lot on this podcast today about personal living expenses and you know uh, being an ideal borrower for a bank and planning for your future is you know, independent if you're gonna be looking for a new capital solution, independent of any of those uh, decision tree processes that might be down the road in six months or 12 years, I would highly encourage you know all of our audience members to take a moment uh, and sit down and really you know you know either you know look at their economics personally, you know contact Polaris you know to have us kind of work through and you know with, with your goals are you positioned correctly in your current uh, structure, uh, but and take the moment to sit down and understand your own economics and understand the decisions you're m- making today. How do they align with where you want to be? Uh, personally and professionally, uh, 12 months down the road, five years down the road, and 15 years down the road. Yeah, very well said. We always uh, try to give guidance with a uh, a forward-looking um, aspect to it that is over the horizon, not uh, short-term based. Um, you know, and reactionary, for lack of a better term. And I think that's a, a good note to end on today. Uh, once again, these last uh, handful of episodes, I think it's three out of the last four, have been uh, really tremendous. I appreciate you joining me for all of them. You're, you're a wealth of information to Walker, and our, our audience is better off for it. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You got it. We'll uh, we'll we'll make sure to get you on another one on an upcoming episode uh, sometime soon, so we don't go quite as long next time uh, between between DeWalker episodes. 
Please stick around. Uh, We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up today's show. Well, that was a tour de force, as it usually is with my partner, DeWalker Sinha. He is such a a wealth of knowledge and really appreciate him being on the show today. And I know all of you do as well. Um, Before we wrap up today's show, um, by now, probably most of you uh, either have gotten emails about or maybe seen on social media um, that we are going to be hosting a conference uh, with Dr. Mark Costas's Dental Success network group. uh, And that conference is going to be in Denver, Colorado, October 5th through 7th. Um, And it is a conference that we're entitling Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Uh, This is going to be a a highly impactful uh, two days worth of material. And for those who are in the audience um, who are um, looking for more really tactics, I mean, not theory, but applicable uh, tactics in your business. Uh, This is going to be a a two-day course that will hit, gosh, almost all the marks. Um, The meat of it is Thursday and Friday, the 6th and 7th. Wednesday, October the 5th is probably going to be arrival, registration, and a little bit of cocktail reception. But on Thursday and Friday, we're going to go full days, almost both days. Uh, It'll be everything from the fundamental challenges to building a group and really comparing and contrasting growth strategy, buy, build, combination of both, what not to build, uh, what gets you in trouble. We'll have several different personal journeys littered throughout those two uh, days, including Dr. Sampson Liu, who you heard on the podcast not too long ago. Um, There'll be legal structures for scale, uh, DSO um, marketing uh, analytics uh, for success. Uh, We'll dig into banking and capital structures. We've obviously talked a lot about that over the last month on the podcast. Um, And then we'll also have um, financial reporting and solving for net equity in your business. Oh, by the way, there'll be some more information on uh, associate equity as well. So between all of that that I just rattled off, uh, I think we're probably gonna hit all the highlights and give um, concrete advice and guidance on some things to get straight. So we're really excited about this. Um, And if you're listening to this now on the podcast, uh, we will try to link to the registration page in the show notes so you can go directly there. This is a conference that we did announce um, uh, from the stage at the uh, Dental Success Summit back in Phoenix the first weekend in June. We have closed pre-registration for that and we are going to limit this conference to 150 uh, attendees. And I think we are almost already at close to 100. So if you're interested in attending this, get on the ball, get on the ball quickly and register for it because it will surely sell out. We're planning another conference in the spring of 2023, but we don't have any details on that as of yet. Uh, So hopefully you can join us in Denver, October 5th through 7th um, uh, for scaling from clinician to CEO. Be sure to click on the show notes um, for uh, registration links and any other information. So once again, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the show today. Really appreciate you all being in the audience. 
uh, appreciate you referring the podcast out to some of your uh, friends and colleagues. We're seeing the subscriber numbers go up. And it's always great to get uh, personal validation when you uh, when you share our podcast with your colleagues. Uh, we, we see that in the da- in the daily downloads, if you will. If you got questions, feel free to submit them directly to me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. You never know when I might read one on the air or, or um, on an upcoming episode. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode. <music>